0: By
1: the shot. He scores! The shot! He scores! He scores! He's three he, scores! he, scores! he, scores! he, scores! he scores! They score! Ivan Komarov! His first NHL tally! You're listening to Getting Bullied, the podcast by Flyers fans for Flyers fans, with your host. Mark Gino. Now let's get started. Welcome in. This is Getting Bullied. Podcast by Flyers fans, for Flyers fans. Podcast affiliate of affiliatesflyer.com, featured on thehockeywriters.com, and you can check us out on SoundCloud if you don't have iTunes. If you do, we're on iTunes, so check us out there. Comment, rate, subscribe. Today, I'm joined by, from Philly's Flyer, my co-host, AJ Majorana. Yo, what's, what's up? Uh, I, you know, we hit that downtime in the summer where there's nothing going on until training camp. So, It got me thinking about the two guys that are at the helm of the Flyers right now. The two guys that have the most power and the most to say about where this team's going to be going in the future. And that, of course, is general manager Ron Hextall and head coach Dave Hextall. So I thought today we would take the time to evaluate them both to this point. Obviously, there's a bit more of a sample size with Hextall than Hextall. But I think Haxel, two years in is well, um, he's well qualified to be scrutinized and have his time with the Flyers put under a microscope.
0: Yeah, he's done enough that we can look at him and say, OK, what's going wrong? What's going right? <clears throat> and do a little bit of evaluation and see like what we think, uh, what we think going forward.
1: Exactly. And of course, yeah,
0: like this time now where nothing's happening, that's going to get a lot of speculation. <laughs> yeah there's nothing else to think about
1: when people don't have anything to do and once they've watched all the videos on youtube all the old clips and once they've broken out all the old vhs's of the games they have recorded these are the things we're going to be thinking about you know the guys that are in charge the guys that are supposed to be leading this team to a stanley cup down the line are they the right guys i think most people will say, and I'm going to say probably 95% of people will say that Ron Hextall is without a doubt the general manager that's going to win the next Stanley Cup for the Flyers. And I think it's a, a, a lot less of a percentage of people are saying that Dave Hextall is going to be the coach when that inevitably happens. <laughs> so, yeah, I want to yeah, Hextall off-
0: definitely has proven that he can do stuff, but no one's really confident in Hextall.
1: No, not and anymore. <laughs> we have the poll up on uh, the getting bullied Twitter feed. That's at underscore underscore getting bullied. What's your confidence level in Dave Haxall? And eight uh, to ten percent, five to seven percent, two to four percent, or none. As it stands right now, 133 votes. Fifty percent of the people say five to seven. Thirty-five percent, two to four. Eight percent. Say 8 to 10, and 7% say none. So, when you hear that, what's your first reaction to hearing those numbers?
0: It's kind of surprising that there are uh, a large amount of people, like, kind of in the middle there. I felt like it was either going to be like one end of the spectrum. Either you're going to be either you're going to say, okay, we got to trust him and see where this is going, or you're at the bottom and you're like, screw this. He's done enough. He's proven he can't do it. Let's move on. So to see that uh, middle ground there, that's a little bit surprising.
1: I, I, I want, I'm encouraging the people that that are saying that, that like these, this eight percent that are saying they have eight to ten <laughs> confidence in him. I want to, I want to hear why. I mean, I, I, <clears throat> there's always with the Flyers, there's always been these eternal optimist fans that, no matter what the team does, no matter what player they sign, what the trade is, anything like that. They're going to think it's the best move that could have possibly been made by the team. And they just support everything the Flyers do, everybody that works for the Flyers, right down to the guys sweeping up the locker room at the end of the games with this blind confidence. So I want to know why. And maybe you could tell me why a little bit. Maybe you have some kind of insight on this. Why the hell are people saying they have, uh, on a scale of 1 to 10, they have 8 to 10 confidence in Dave Axel. What like? What have you seen that would say that?
0: So if I had to guess why people are have this much confidence in him, why people are a little more trusting, it's because of how the lineup is structured now, how the roster is. So now that they have this kind of stacked roster that that isn't full of guys like Velde and Belmar, uh, guys that he can't play up in the lineup when they're not supposed to be, maybe it's kind of a confidence that – he can't screw this up. There's no way he could screw this up so bad that the team just tanks. So maybe it's less a confidence in Hackstall himself and more confidence in the fact that he can't screw this up any, any more than he did last season.
1: Well, the problem is this, that, yeah, there's going to be a lot of young guys on this team that are going to be making up this roster. Obviously Ron Hackstall has said that he said, whatever holes are on the team now are being filled by the young guys. Well, We saw last year with the young guys that they had up in Konechny and Provorov and even Jordan Wheel, how underutilized they were. It's almost like he was afraid to put these guys out there and just let them learn, you know, let them learn on the ice and and not like on the game ice, not the practice ice. And for me, if there's even more young guys, yeah, he's going to be forced to play a lot of them. But. At the same time, there's still guys like Dale Weiss on this team and Matt Reed on this team, and those are kind of his go-to guys to, you know, eat up a lot of minutes because they're, I guess because of their veteran presence, he feels better, he feels more confident with guys like that out there than he does, you know, some of the younger guys, but, I mean, to me, those two guys have to be an afterthought, and you just have to see what what these younger guys have, and because moving forward, once they're in the position financially and organization-wise, they have when it's time to start bringing in free agents and stuff like that, you know, the, the little pieces to fine-tune uh, a playoff team and a cup contender, they have to know who can play and who can't. And putting guys out there like Dale Weiss and Matt Reed is not going to help them, and you're not going to see what you have in these young guys. So I, I, I think in a way he might be a little timid he might be a little hesitant to play these young guys as much as i think the fans want to see and i think as much as the the players need to be played because i think he just <laughs> thinks if he doesn't if it doesn't work out here he may not get another shot in the nhl
0: yeah it'll definitely be tough and you bring up a couple uh good points especially with like evaluating what you have in these young guys so one of the things I've been thinking about for a little bit now is um, Anthony Stolars, the goalie and how they treated him and how they handled him, which we can get to later on when we talk right. about like Hexal and stuff like that. But I like the point cause I didn't even think about how this will affect like Matt Reed or Dale Weese or Michael Roffel who Dale Weiss at the end of the season actually got a little stronger. So with guys like Vandevelde and Belmar out, it's it's definitely a possibility that Hax, that Hextall not Hextall hackstall goes and finds new filling guys. So Matt Reed is has been kind of a shutdown guy for most of his career here. And if Hextall Hack, keeps up this um, conservative approach that he's been doing, he might be giving Reed a whole lot of minutes and playing the kids like nine minutes a game like Oscar Lindbom might might only get like 10 minutes a game while Matt Reed's playing second line minutes. So that I didn't even think about that. That's scaring me now.
1: Yeah. Well, the model the Flyers kind of have to go after this season is that of the Maple Leafs last year. Now, obviously, they don't have a Matthews on this team to, you know, spark the rest of the guys. Maybe, I mean, they have Nolan Patrick, but he's not as nhl ready as matthews was so but the fly but they played so many young guys last year the maple leafs and they were able to build kind of a continuity together and they were able to build a playoff team and that's what the flyers have to go for this year you know you have all these young talented guys that you spent draft picks on and you spent money on if they were undrafted and stuff like that and you know you you have all these assets, so now it's time to use them. And I'm going to read this tweet because this kind of goes off of what you said uh, with the overuse of, well, kind of what we both said, with the overuse of these, these other guys. And this is from uh, at Chris Kringle 1977. So Santa Claus checking in. Uh it says, concerned that he overused Vandeveldi, a player no other team wants, willing to give him this season to show coaching improvement. And that goes back to what you said. These people have this optimism about this season because guys like Belmar are gone, guys like Vandeveldi are gone, that it's almost he has to play so many players that he may not have been comfortable with playing last year. I mean, if these, if some of these, if they had all these young guys last year, they would probably would have been just been stored in the press box, and that would have been the end of it. And we would still be having Van de Velde and Belmar Reed and Weesh stuffed down our throat. So right now, I would say that Flyers fans have an approach of the season of uh, optimistic, but they like they're looking at him. I don't know, a little a little sideways. I think last going into last year, people were just like, yeah, you know, he's a good guy. But I think last year spoke volumes to the way that he runs this team and manages the lineup. But people are willing to give him the benefit of the doubt because they're going to have more talent on this team.
0: Yeah, definitely. And I think it's confusing because... The, his style last season was so drastically different from the first season. Like, out of nowhere, he got really conservative. He started to be playing these grinders more often. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was playing, like, trying to play a penalty kill style through the whole game. And even before, even when he was with North Dakota, his style kind of revolved on pushing offense through defensive movement. So it didn't really make sense that they were just trying to shut everything down and failing. Like the whole point of his system before was to get the defense involved in the play so they can get shots on net so they can get scoring chances. And instead they kind of did the opposite. They were always putting it back to the defense, uh, never using, not really using the offense to generate offense. And it was just, it was really weird. So I think if he goes back to what he's been doing for his entire career and coaching that way, then we see not only an uptick in like, wins and stuff, but we see Giroux bounce back, we see Voracek bounce back, we see Ghost bounce back in some way. So as long as they're letting offense go, as long as they're letting offensive players be offensive, then I don't think there's a huge issue.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, to to that point, uh, when you're talking about North Dakota, you know, moving the play through the defense, really last year we didn't have many, I mean, this year if if everything works out the way everyone thinks it's going to, you know, you're going to have these younger puck-moving defensemen that everyone's been waiting to see. So maybe this is the year that he can finally implement his system to full effect now that he has the right guys to do it. Because, you know, last year he was rolling out, you know, Del Zotto and, you know, Andrew McDonald's still going to be here. That's an entirely separate issue, but whatever. And, you know, he had an aging and, you know, broken down Mark Streit for a large part of the year. So I think he in a way, was just adjusting to what he had. But you saw, especially during the 10-game winning streak, when he kind of just went out there and let the, let the players play their game, and I think they had a much more open style of offense and just kind of, you know, they went out there and were just creative. They weren't catering to, they weren't letting the game come to them. They were bringing the game to their opponent. And then after the winning streak stopped, he shelled up again, and that, that whole style of play went by the wayside, and again, he, you know, everybody was back on their heels, and just, you know, trying to trying to play to strength that they didn't have.
0: Yeah, exactly. And it kind of coincided with um, the goaltending, like, as soon as that 10-game win streak was over, Neuverth got re-signed, but then he went on that horrible streak, and then Mason had to step up, but it, like someone, like people from Broad Street Hockey have said that put out the idea that maybe he was playing for the goaltending. But I don't, yeah, I don't think it's just that. I think it's like what you said. It might be the tools he has didn't fit the system he wanted to make. So he was trying to adjust on the fly, and it just failed spectacularly.
1: Well, I'm glad you brought up the, the goalie situation. And we're gonna get into this a little bit more when we talk about Hextall, as far as the guys that he put on the roster. But you saw for the last two years, it wasn't just last year, but he he showed a lot of I don't I, I don't overconfidence in certain guys, especially well, most mostly Mason because. Um, You know, and I, I go back a lot to two years ago when they were in the playoffs and coming down that stretch at the end of the year when Neuwirth was hurt and how much he went to Steve Mason. You know, Steve Mason practically played the last two months of that season and into the playoffs. And you could see at the end of the season how gassed he was and into the playoffs how gassed he was. He was letting in soft goals. You know, I'll never forget the one that he let in from the red line. I mean, you could just tell he was tired, and at no point, look, I get, during the playoffs, that's not the time you do it, but, you know, down that stretch at the end of the season is, you know, I know Stolarz was up here, but they never, it's like it never even crossed his mind to give Steve Mason a break, you know, and I know they were trying to make the playoffs, and you want to go with your best guy. But at the same time, if you think your team's good enough to make the playoffs, if you plan on being there, you got to make sure that your goalie's fresh enough to perform well in the playoffs. And I think his management of the goaltenders, his two years here, has just it's raised so many questions. Coming down the stretch last year, the, Steve Mace was riding hot again. And, you know, out of nowhere, he puts in Neuberth in. And it was a bit, it was, the, I think they was. Against Toronto, they had a big game against Toronto. Mason was riding hot, and they put in Mace or Neuberth, and and that's it. And they lost, and you know they lost points points in the standings. They lost traction in the standings, and eventually they obviously everyone knows they didn't make the playoffs. And whether that's a hundred percent on how he used the goalies or not is an entirely separate issue. Probably not, but his management of the goalies and part of it may be what he had to work with, but his management of the goalies has just been, uh, to me, there's been more negative there than there's been positive.
0: Yeah. He's been flip-flopping a lot. And I think that, um, that loss with Neuwirth, I think that was when people officially gave up on the playoffs. Like they were like two points behind a wild card spot. And then with that, that uh, loss, they dropped like four or six or something like that. But that was like, the final straw they were like all right we're not making the playoffs anymore and then um two years ago when you were talking about mason going down the stretch and uh, Stolars being up they had a couple like back-to-back games where everyone was like okay well you play Stolars, let's see what we got in him this is a good chance to see what we have to evaluate his talent and instead of doing that they played mason back-to-back yeah and and there was another one we said, Okay, there's no way he could play Mason for another back to back, and he played Mason for another back to back and yeah. he just never really gave Stolars a whole lot of a chance
1: um i I, I think that that speaks a lot I think to the- organiza- organizations confidence in Solars because they had a chance this year to go into the season with him as the backup to Neuberth and Ron Hextall came right out and said that he didn't feel confident with those two being his goalie tandem so you know and like that what's going on with the goalies and what's going on with Solars is it's such a bigger issue that down the line during this dead period of no hockey in the summer you know we definitely have to get into at some point but I think I I don't know. I mean, Hackstall. I don't, I, when they brought him in, I didn't have a, a, a lot of confidence, you know, because he came from college, 100%. And, you know, maybe that, and I know it's not the same sport, obviously, but I think I was burned a little bit by what Chip, Chip Kelly. Kelly did to the Eagles. Yeah. Because, yeah. you know, it, it, it was a fresh wound, and it was kind of the same thing, and the only difference is, Chip Kelly came in his first year and lit the world on fire, and, Dave Hakstol came in in his first year and he looked like a rookie head coach in the NHL and but they still made the playoffs. He looked good at times, but there were other times where you you know, you raised some pretty big question marks. And then you went into last year and to me, I saw a regression. I didn't see a coach that learned from his mistakes the year before. I saw a guy that it's almost like he wanted to tamper expectations of the team as much as possible. So his seat didn't get too warm too fast. And I don't know. I, I I know it's the, you know, the talent of the team is better, but I don't, I haven't seen enough from, and the more I talk, the more I'm lowering my confidence in him, The, the, the more I think about, you know, him, the coach, but, I mean, I don't see any, I haven't seen anything from him to have any semblance of confidence that he can be the top tier NHL coach that the Flyers need him to be to win a Stanley Cup.
0: Yeah. And I know this is like maybe one of my crazy little theories that I had early on or earlier on in the season, but when he was benching players, it didn't seem like he was actually telling them what to adjust. So, like, when Konechny was getting benched, it didn't seem like he was getting any instruction on what he could do better. I think the only one who got any instruction was Goss' bear, and he was just being told, don't be offensive. Don't go up there. Don't join the rush. you got to be more defensive, which is bad advice. So, I mean, people have, like, disagreed with that, that he didn't communicate with his players. But I still kind of—it's in the back of my head that when he was talking to Nick Cousins— or when the media was talking to Nick Cousins, Uh, Cousins came out and said, well, I don't know what I can do better. Uh, They haven't told me anything. I'm just scratched, and I don't know why. And that always, that was just bugging me in the back of my head for the whole season. And I'm just, I can't get over
1: it, really. But that's, even that's not so much solely on him. I mean, there's, uh, he had assistant coaches, like, that, should know by now that have been doing this long enough to coach up guys in that situation. But another thing that I I don't like at all, and and that and that's it seems like under him the team as a whole doesn't have any fire, doesn't have any heart whatsoever. It's almost like when they get you know, they, how many times have we said that they they've came out and they didn't play it full 60 minutes. Either they came out slow or they finished slow, and that's why they lost the game. The team doesn't have the fire that it needs and the fire that we as Flyer, Flyers fans are accustomed to. You know, there's no, you know, if a play, if a, if a smaller player or something gets hurt, get, or not gets hurt, but gets tossed around, it's almost like the other players are just like, well, wh- what do you want me to do about it? You know, he, he's a grown man. He can, you know, he can pick up for himself. The only two guys on the teams on the team that do that are Simmons and Brandon Manning. And, you know, when your sixth sixth def- or your seventh defenseman is the one stepping in, that's a huge problem because you're letting teams come in and just say we could bully this team all night and. You know they're just gonna go away, and we could score, and we'll get out of here with a win,
0: so I do think that was one of the contributing factors to why uh Braden Shen and Wayne Simmons put up so many points, and maybe Jeron and Vorchek didn't. I think those guys are more finesse players uh they don't play as heavy, but um with guys coming in like Patrick, who's supposed to be he was big uh with Moran and Hag coming in who are big guys. I think adding a little weight to the team will help them uh, in battles a little more. I don't think it's so much that they have to, they feel like they have to fight, but I think they weren't really um, like Travis Konechny was one of the biggest agitators on the team. And he's kind of a small guy. We can't have Travis Konechny going into a corner with a guy, poking him in the shins, and then getting concussed for the rest yeah. of the season. You do need big guys who can go into these corners with these guys and battle it out and then put it in front where Konechny will be waiting. Like, you need guys who can go into the corners instead of these finesse players who are supposed to be going to the net and getting around people. Um,
1: well, I think I that's I why. Gonna say about that. yeah. I think that's why part of, uh, you know, Konechny may not have. And guys like Konechny may not have as impressed as much last year as I think people wanted them to because they were kind of playing out of their element, playing out of their game. You know, you're absolutely right. Travis Konechny has no business going into a puck battle in the corner. There's just, that's not what he should be doing because nine times out of ten, he's going to be outweighed by at least 20 pounds with whoever he's going into that battle with. Yeah, exactly. At LHD20 on Twitter says, I have zero confidence. He is overmatched, punishes rookies, team is boring, and they don't stand up for one another. Except Manning and Simmons. And that's exactly my point. <laughs> right there. And I'm, I, subconsciously, I think I read that earlier and just rehashed it. So credit to LHD20 on Twitter. But, yeah, I mean, it's so, uh, it's a it's a problem that I think a lot of people are seeing and it's not, I, to me, it's not talked about enough. The fact that you look at when the team isn't playing up to, isn't playing that well, if they're making d- dumb mistakes, taking dumb penalties, you get the, the classic pan over to the bench and he's just standing there arms folded, stoic, not saying anything, not reacting. And, you know, when you do that and he said, you know, he said a lot time and time again in in his post game press conferences that you know yelling isn't going to solve anything you know that's not going to that's not going to teach the players well if you don't if you don't have this strict approach to how you want things done uh game in and game out then what's going to happen is the the players are just going to think well what we're doing is okay he's not telling us what we're doing is wrong he's not mad about what just happened so until that happens, I'm just going to keep I'm just going to keep doing it.
0: Yeah, I think definitely the kind of accountability that was there. Like it started to come out later in the season that guys weren't happy with the way he was uh, benching people and uh, playing guys irregularly for mistakes like some of the younger guys were getting severely punished. They were getting half their time cut, they weren't getting played in the third period at all. Meanwhile, guys like Belmar take a penalty and they're still going they're still getting the most minutes out there. So I think it kind of got into the locker room a little bit that they weren't happy with his decisions, but I think his um attitude on the bench it's best for when there's a lot of penalties going against you. So when it when a game gets frustrating and you kind of have to keep your guys calm, you got to keep them under wraps so they don't they don't go out and take more penalties and hurt the team more i think that's helpful to have that kind of calm nature but you do have to get a little in some of the older guys faces to make sure that they know that there is accountability for them if they mess up they are going to have to learn
1: what you need to do is you need to make an example of somebody you know if And, you know, I don't care who it is at this point. If one of the top tier guys on the team, Simmons, Giroux, Voracek, you know, if they come out and, you know, make a dumb penalty, you know, don't pick up a defensive assignment and a guy scores or something. And maybe you don't do it on the bench, but you do it behind closed doors where you really need to lay into that player because you're going to have so many young rookies on this team, you need to lay into that guy so they know that that's not acceptable. We can't accept stupid mistakes. We can't accept stupid penalties. We can only accept you to be at your absolute best night in and night out. So, you know, if Claude Giroux, and I I know the the Giroux fanatics are going to, you know, hate this, but if Claude Giroux comes out and in the first 10 games just playing flat, and, you know, was playing pretty much like he did last year where he wasn't playing up to how everyone expects him to play, maybe you bench him a game or two. I get he's the captain, but what do you have to lose at that point? Because now you're showing these young guys that this is the captain and he's not playing well and this is what's going to happen. He's the captain and I did it to him. What do you think I'm going to do to you? Because the young guys have the option to be, you know, they don't have to be on the roster. They could be sent back to juniors, sent to the Phantoms. So. For them to see that, it's going to be like, okay, if he's doing this to an established player on this team, in this franchise, the captain of the team, then he will have no problems doing that to me.
0: Yeah, at the same time, you have to give the younger guys a little more leeway because they're still growing into the game. So it's like, okay, you have a leash. Don't make these stupid mistakes, but just pay attention to the game. Right. If you're benching one of the older guys, one of the veterans, it's kind of like this is a learning experience. This is what they did wrong. Don't do it. But if you're benching Travis Konechny for every little mistake he's making, he's going to he's going to clam up. He's not going to be good in an NHL role. He's going to be judging himself. He's going to be second guessing every move he makes. And it's not going to be great for his growth. While benching one of the older guys sends a message that they need to do adjust something and it also shows the younger guys what not to do here's an example of what you can and can't fix
1: it's almost like i mean that that would be like the moment that at the end of the season if they make the playoffs and let's just say they get to the second round that would be the moment that they all reference back to saying you know it was at this point of the season when when coach benched Wayne Simmons, or when coach Bench, Jake Voracek, that we all saw that, you know, we can't afford to be any less than at our absolute best, and that's when we all turned around, that's when we all kind of grew together as a team, because we realized how well we have to play to succeed, and that being dumb isn't going to be tolerated, isn't going to be accepted. So I, I think at a certain point, you need to just sack up as a coach and realize, you know, you're in charge. You can do whatever you want to the lineup. And if you need to, you know, bench a guy or, you know, limit his ice time, whatever, to make a point, then go ahead and do it. So,
0: Speaking of coaches and being on the hot seat, do we think the new assistant coach poses any threat going forward?
1: If you're asking me, no, because to me, if, if Hackstall and I don't think he will, but if Hackstall got, let's say, fired at the end of this season, um, to me, it doesn't make any sense to go from one project coach to another. And Knobloch, I mean, you'd basically be starting from square one with the coaching thing. You know, you're going to get that two-year grace period to say, oh, he's just learning the game. I mean, if you get rid of Hackstall, then... To me, you bring in an experienced guy that's been there, done that, has a playoff pedigree. Doesn't necessarily have to have won a Stanley Cup, but has that playoff pedigree to come in and shape the young guys, and as well shape Knobloch. You know, maybe the the next guys yeah, here exactly. five years, and you know Knobloch is learning under him, and when that guy leaves. That it's time for a knoblock to step up, and he he has the experience, a behind the bench in the, in the NHL, and he has the experience of learning under a guy that has had success in the league and isn't still learning the game like Haxtell is.
0: Yeah, exactly. That that was kind of my s- same thoughts. Uh, you don't want another project guy. You don't want a guy who's going to go through the same mistakes. Uh, get someone who's going to be steady, who can teach this guy, and if in a few years, if you want to. Replace them, put block in, and then you can go from there.
1: So, let's let's jump uh, to a different topic here, and let's look at the guy now that is making all these calls. Um, and real quick, before I get to that, I'll give it one final little tabulation on our poll. Until next week, I'll give the final. Um, again, what's your confidence at level in Dave Hackstall? Eight to ten, five to seven, two to four, or none. 5 to 7 still leads with 51%, 2 to 4 with 33%, and then 8 to 10 and none are deadlocked at 8% each. So, everyone's pretty much as down the middle as they can be on Dave Hackstall. But what about the guy that and I almost there's no point in even putting out this uh the a poll about Ron Hextall because you know where that's going to go. You know how people feel about him. He hasn't done much wrong. You know, if you look at the moves he's made, the trades he's made, it's hard to criticize Ron Hextall for the job he's done since being hired as general manager of this team.
0: Yeah, exactly. Unless, like, if you want to get picky, you can, like, nitpick things and find little things, but they're not things that were directly under his control or directly his fault. Like signing Dale Weiss, uh the contract was a little weird, but he didn't predict that Weiss would drop off a cliff production wise, but he's still a good movement player. If he can be the same guy he was at the end of the season, that's a good pickup. Like there's not really a lot of wrong that Hextall has done.
1: See, to me the uh the Weiss thing stands out more than anything else. And I know mm-hmm. it's not a major thing, but and you can't knock him too much for it, but at the same time, why is Dale Weiss getting a four-year contract when you're telling me that you are trying to go with this youth movement and, you know, that – I I don't know. I, I don't like Dale Weiss enough to give him a four-year contract. I, I hadn't even realized it until about halfway through the season because I thought he was on like a one-year deal. And I was like, all right, cool. Like, when he was playing, like, terribly, I'm like, all right, well, this is, you know, whatever. We'll just get rid of him at the end of the year, and that'll be the end of it. And then I looked up his contract, and I my head nearly exploded when I saw four years. So basically what that means, if he doesn't play well at the end of this year— or uh, this entire season in the off season, you're gonna have to start the conversation: Do you buy out Dale Weiss, or do you keep him around for another year? I mean, you don't want to have to go into every off season with the conversation of buying out a player, and that's what we talked about this off season with Matt Reed, because he's going in the last year of his deal, and you know maybe next off season is probably not the time for Dale Weese because I don't see them buying out a guy with two years left, but maybe next season definitely the season after if he doesn't play up to whatever the hell Ron Hextall thought his play his top playing level was then you, that's a conversation you're going to have to have and again it's a very minimal thing it's not going to you know strap them for cash by any means but that's one thing that stood out to me and the other is obviously what we just talked about in um the drafting or the hiring of dave hextall
0: yeah so i actually have a little bit of a theory on dale weiss so i think that hextall was planning for a little bit longer of a rebuild than we're currently getting so uh i don't think he expected Rubstov to be coming over soon i think he still expects him to be in the juniors for another year or two i don't he definitely didn't expect to get the second pick in the draft so I think with like players like uh Matt Reed going off the books, I think Raffles about to be off. Uh with those guys leaving, I think Dale Weiss might have been some a little bit of a bridge for a be- veteran presence. So I think he was planning a little th- on the roster looking a little differently.
1: Yeah, and you know, I I just You're probably right about that. I mean, I don't think he expect. I I also don't think he expected to have to lean on these guys as much. I I was I think he kind of hoped that some of the other guys that they had under contract already would have stepped up more. Like I don't think he expected to have to trade, uh, Braden Shen. But lo and behold, he did, and you know now that spot has to be filled by somebody scoring wise. Yeah, I know. Yuri Letera is on the team and he technically takes his spot as far as, you know, just a roster spot goes. But from the sense of scoring, I don't think he's expecting Yuri Laterra to come in and put up that those 25 goals that you're missing in Shen. So now he has to lean on a young guy to do that or a combination of young guys to do that. But I mean, he, he's came in and, and day one pre, uh, preached being patient. And everybody bought in. We're all bought in at this point. We don't have a choice. But, And I think part of this rebuild, part of why it's going, if you want to say slow, is because they don't have any type of... Um, they've been strapped cap-wise because of the dumb, moronic, idiotic, jackassery signings of Paul Holmgren. Yeah, he definitely.
0: Should. Like, Especially one of his first moves was trading away um, Hartnell, which wasn't super popular. But he had to make moves like that to clear out cap space so that we could be in this position today. So that we would have a better position with money going forward. So it's not even sure it might be a little bit unpopular, but it's the smarter thing to do
1: going back to what you said you brought up Michael Raffle just pulled up his contract he signed this year and next year so you got two more years of Raffle as well and i think
0: okay yeah he just he just signed a new contract didn't yeah it? he
1: just re up yeah 3 years uh i guess it was last off season i think
0: mm mm-hmm.
1: mhm yeah but
0: i forgot about that
1: <laughs> and that that's another guy that i don't think he expected his play to tail off and part of the reason why he wasn't as productive as I think Hexall thought he was going to be was because it seemed like every other week he was getting injured for two weeks.
0: Yeah, he was injured a lot.
1: Yeah. So that's another thing that that's probably another guy that we're going to have to really, I mean, there's three, I mean, well, I don't want to say three because uh, Reed is going to be gone, but Especially next season, there's three guys that are going to really going to be under a microscope on this team that what do you do with, and that's Michael Roffle, Dale Weese, Yuri Latera. you know, you're trying to integrate all these young guys, but then you're going to have these three guys who, with questionable game, uh, what do you do with them? Do you buy them out? Do you just try to get rid of them for, you know, a couple of sticks and a seventh round pick? So I think finally we're going to, and once, you know, once he gets some cap space, once some of these, I don't want to say bad contracts, but somewhat hint, hindering contracts are off the books, that's when we're really going to get into the nitty gritty with Ron Hextall and really going to be able to see him cut his chops as a GM. When it's time to go out and evaluate not so much the young guys in, you know, juniors and stuff, when, it, when it's time for him to go out and evaluate. NHL talent, guys that are already here, and when it's time to, for him to really go out and, all right, we need, uh, we need this guy. This guy fits this need. This guy fits this need. Once it's time for him to start shaping this team around this young core, that's when he's going to be open to the most scrutiny, and that's when we're really going to get to see what the hell he's all about.
0: And I think we got a little bit of a glimpse of that this uh, off season, just with um. With the young guys coming up, especially the defensemen, there were beat writers talking about, oh, well, now if they go after a veteran guy, and that was the stupidest idea ever. Yeah. Like, you already have McDonald up here. We don't need to strap another old guy onto the team and block a young guy. But there was a rumor for a really short amount of time that I think it was uh, Markov
1: yeah, from I was gonna, Habs yep.
0: <laughs> that they were considering him, and he shut it down. And even though Markov would have been an upgrade over McDonald, uh, he shut it down real quick because we don't need it. He needs space for the young guys, and I think that proved a little bit of what we can look forward to with him making decisions to benefit this group getting younger instead of older.
1: McDonald wasn't his signing, was it? Did he give him that contract? Uh,
0: no, no, I think that was
1: Holmgren. Oh, yeah, sense. that wasn't Hexel. Yeah, that, see, Holmgren's a moron. Holmgren ha- handcuffed this team to the point where we have to sit stagnant for as long as we have because he gave them nothing to work with. Mm-hmm. I hate, oh, see.
0: And imagine I, if they had actually got Shea Weber for that oh, I know. huge contract.
1: What, real quick, speaking of Shea Weber, what's your um, stance as a hockey guy on uh, Al Morganti? <laughs>
0: well, what, what do you mean in what way?
1: Well, I mean, do you, do you, do you tend to trust his opinion and the things that he says about hockey, specifically the Flyers? I mean, not to
0: a point where I would take it see, like too seriously. Uh if he says something, I'll definitely research it and look into it, but I'm not going to take everything he says at his word. See, like I haven't paid attention to him enough, you know.
1: Yeah. I think with him um I think he's really smart when it comes to hockey and I think he knows that and he tends I, I to me I, I think he tends to like joke around a lot when he's asked about certain things like I was listening to him on the radio and it was probably like one of three callers that week that called in about the Flyers and they mentioned Giroux and he, he Al Morgani spouted off this trade proposal that I couldn't tell if he was being serious or not. <laughs> he said that the Flyers should call Montreal and try to do a one, you know, one for one trade. Giroux goes to Montreal, and the Habs send back Shea Weber.
0: Oh my God!
1: <laughs> like that—that's what I said. I must drove off the road when I heard that.
0: Oh, my God.
1: What? See,
0: <laughs> like, that sounds like something the Habs would do, only reverse it. They would send us Galchenyuk, and they would take, like, McDonald or something. That's what yeah. I expect from them, something stupid.
1: For the Habs, oh, it oh, makes that. sense, because they're a playoff team, and they need help up front. So for them, yeah, they would take that. The Flyers would have to probably eat a good bit of Giroux's contract, but the Habs would do that all day. doesn't make any oh, sense yeah. in the world for the Flyers to do that. <laughs>
0: No, I I really hope he was joking because, I mean I expect that from the radio stations around here and the beat writers. But I mean, if if it's a joke, there's always the chance that he's joking, and I would love to ask him
1: about it. Maybe we should try to get him on. I'm gonna work on that. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of uh, the beat writers, I understand you uh have taken umbrage with what one John Boric has said earlier today. Oh
0: Lord. So, speaking of the lineup and putting guys in certain positions and places and stuff like that, it's basically decided, it's a done deal, that Nolan Patrick, if he makes this team, which he probably will, is going to play somewhere at center. He's going to play either the third or the fourth line, maybe, but he's going to be a center. Someone asked him before uh, if they had ever tried to play him at the wing, and he said, yeah, I played for one shift, it went horrible, and my coach immediately put me back at center. Ron Hextall has said that Nolan Patrick, if he makes his team, is going to play center. So John Bork tweets out that with, um, with Patrick and Laterra joining the team, that one of them is going to have to move to the wing. And it will be a challenge for the both of them, which is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Wrong, wrong just for the fact that it would be Laterra moving to wing because we already know, well, maybe not. Maybe Laterra plays at center and someone else can move to wing, but Nolan Patrick isn't going to the wing. And it's wrong in the fact that Yuri Letera has played on the wing with the Blues. So it's not a challenge. It's not a new thing. It's not like it would be a huge, major adjustment. It would be him playing one of his positions, and it's just such a dumb thing that's already been settled.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's part of the reason why the Flyers made the move for, let's like not made the move for him, but accepted him in the trade for Braden Shen because he's he's exactly what they needed on the fourth line with the fact that they lost Belmar. They need that two way center or two way forward that could. They could move all over the ice and he could still give them some pretty decent production. And for you to even conceive the idea in your brain that the number two overall pick in the draft would be moved off of his natural position before he even steps on the ice in the NHL is completely asinine that's like saying we drafted the Eagles draft Carson Wentz second overall, but he's got the height and the size to play wide receivers. So if we need to move him there, we will.
0: Yeah, we're going to let him catch the ball not throw it.
1: Exactly. You don't do that. I mean, part of what makes Nolan Patrick a great player is his vision for the ice, and you're not getting all of the use of that vision by putting him on the wing. He needs to be in the middle to see all things. And that's what Also, another thing that why he's such a great player is his playmaking abilities. And he's got that Giroud trait in him where he could set up guys with the best of them. And it's harder to do that when you're a winger. That's just the bottom line. So I don't know what... See, this is what happens. This is what happens when it's it's the summer and it's hot, it's humid. People are delirious; they're saying dumb shit. And that's what John Bork did. He just—I think he was hot. He was outside mowing the lawn in his he's just laying in the sun too much. Yeah, was just he's outside too much in his in his suit and his giant necktie. And that's just what happened. You know, yeah, he's, he's trying
0: sunbathing to, in the suit. That's why it's brown now. It used exactly. to be white. It's got yeah.
1: tan. Yeah, exactly, and you know. It's no secret everyone's been saying speculating that he's the new beat guy for CSM Philly now that they let Panaccio go. So, when you're thrust into a new role you're not really comfortable with or know too much about, you're going to try to draw attention and that's probably what that is more than anything else. It's because that's what it sounds like. It sounds like a guy just trying to like everyone's so big on making hot takes now and <laughs> just saying outlandish stuff for the sake of saying outlandish stuff, and I think that's exactly what John Borick did. Because if you honestly believe as a person, as somebody that calls yourself a hockey fan, that Nolan Patrick is going to move to the wing, then you need to shut it down and, I don't know, write baseball. Do something else.
0: (laughs) Do a little bit of research at least. Like, come on.
1: See, that's the thing. No one wants to research anything anymore. They just say it. That's a fan comment. What he said was a fan comment trying to just, like, trying to spark conversation. And he did spark conversation, but it's all the negative conversation that he sparked. Now no one believes anything that he says. Yeah, exactly. I'll tell you, and it's not just him, but it's who he works for in CSN Philly. It's the radio stations that are going on right now that just put out half-assed hockey coverage on in a city like this that loves all all four sports and it, you know everyone's going to say it's a football town because of the Eagles but and that may be true there's very few NFL or there's very few cities in the country that have an NHL and an NFL team, and the NFL team doesn't rule, except, like, maybe Detroit, Minnesota, Boston, whatever. Yeah. But to, to, to just put out blatant, half-assed, well, subpar coverage of a major sport in this city, it's embarrassing. You know, you would never get that with coverage of the Phillies or coverage of the Sixers or the Eagles but I, I, I'm not sure I don't understand why the Flyers are just treated the way they are in this city by the by the local media.
0: Yeah so extremely underserved and it doesn't make sense there's a fan base there you obviously have to appeal to some people because you can't talk about 16 games for 365 days people get bored.
1: Well they do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I mean they do, but I'm and now like the Flyers are they're they're buried a little bit because of that just that fact their their season goes on when football season goes on and when basketball season goes on. If summer was a hockey sport, that's all anybody would be talking about because the Phillies blow. Oh yeah, it's that's not ours. like it's not like the Flyers are the friggin' Atlanta Thrashers where they have to pretty much give tickets away just to sell out the building, just to make it look full. Even when the Flyers were as bad as they were in the 6 07 season, the the building was still packed most nice because the, this city is so loyal to this team, and I've said it before, almost to a fault, how blindly followed the Flyers are by a lot of fans in this city. And they don't get the credit they deserve. They don't get the coverage they deserve. And that's why people like us, people like all the other great Flyers blogs and podcasts that are going on, that's why we have to really make this push to just, you know, almost to a point where we can't be silenced. We can't be ignored by the mainstream quote-unquote media like CSN, WIP, and 97.5.
0: Yeah, it's amazing because we're filling a void, too. They just leave it open. So guys like guys like us, guys like uh, Broad Street Hockey Radio, guys like Jason M- Meritus or however you say his last name, I don't even know. He even split off from his show and does his own hockey podcast now because there's a market for it that they're not filling.
1: Oh, Martinez. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I couldn't think who the hell you were talking about. i
0: I've never actually heard him say his name, so I have no yeah. idea.
1: Yeah, I mean that was good that was good by him because yeah he silenced so much on the show with Mike Missanelli that and even uh listeners call in and tell him nobody cares about hockey but that's just not true. People do care about hockey because I guarantee if the, when the Flyers win a Stanley Cup again that broad street is going to be packed. Everyone's going to be a Flyers fan again. Everyone's going to be saying that they were there from 74, 75 to now, when the truth is that's not the way it is. It's just not. Because people. there's a lot of people that bash the Flyers, bash Flyers fans, and these are the same people that when they get good, when they're making deep runs in the playoffs, when they're winning Stanley Cups, they're going to be right there celebrating like they've suffered, like the rest of us.
0: And the radio still won't talk about the Flyers. <laughs> exactly.
1: If if any other team wins, you're going to have live broadcasts at the parade and not the Flyers. They might send an intern down there to interview a couple of drunk guys and then say, like, oh, that's Flyers fans. They're a bunch of they're drunk idiots. Well, you know what? We are drunk idiots. And I'm proud of it. God damn it.
0: We deserve it.
1: <laughs> yeah. We threw uh, we threw bracelets on the ice. You should, we should all have been. Everybody at that game should have been tarred and feathered because they threw bracelets on the ice. Heathens, I'll tell you. Yeah, I don't understand. Well, well, and that's something that I think we should dive into this show and. You know guys at phileasflyer.com, dot com I think we really need to dive into that issue more down the road. why the flyers aren't respected as much as we believe they deserve to be, and why they're for the most part put as the fourth team in this city so we'll we'll jump into that down the road yeah, but absolutely. i think we've uh i think we've overstayed our welcome here tonight a j <laughs> if uh if i'm if I'm a young gentleman on uh, Twitter and I need to fi- I need to see what AJ Majorana has to say about the Flyers. Where would I find that at?
0: Uh, you can find me at extrasauce underscore.
1: And of course he's on our uh, well the show's affiliate is com. we do the podcast for them. And uh, you can check me out on Twitter at Mark Flagman. You can check the show out on Twitter at underscore getting bullied check out Philly's flyer at Philly is flyer and check out all the great hockey flyers coverage that's going on and also uh, for a more of a national if you don't want to just the flyers you want to see what else is going on out there don't go to NHL.com go to the hockey writerscom because they have really good young writers that know what the hell they're talking about you could also catch our podcast there. We're on iTunes. Comment, rate, subscribe. If you are a loser and don't have an iPhone, you can see us on SoundCloud as well. So until next week, let's go Flyers.